So if you have a Bible, please have it open. We're in Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to open with a, um, a poem. It's like a poem prayer that I like to pray before I teach classes. I like to pray for my students. Here, I teach, I teach some uh, Greek and Hebrew classes at, at the university. And so, this is a, you can pray this or you can just listen. I think it's a really, really good poem. I don't know who wrote it. Lord, at thy word opens yon door inviting, teacher and taught to feast this hour with thee, opens a book where God in human writing thinks his deep thoughts and dead tongues live for me. To dread the task, to great the duty calling, too heavy far the weight is laid on me. Oh, if mine own thoughts should on thy words falling mar the great message and men hear not thee, give me thy voice to speak, thine ear to listen, give me thy mind to grasp thy mystery. So shall my heart throb and my glad eyes glisten, wrapped with the wonders thou dost show to me. So we'll begin in Micah 6 today. And can we have somebody read it? We'll just read one, verses 1 through 8. Yeah, yeah anybody. Are oh, you reading NIV? Yes. Okay. In Micah 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted, and what Balaam son of Baal answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. So... The way I'd like to proceed is I'd like to begin by talking about just the structure of this passage. Then we'll look at the literary themes of Micah and see what unique theme this passage presents us with. So the, the way I want to open this is say, look at verses 1 and 2. These are the, the introduction to the, to the oracle or to the, the message of... It's, it's a law court scene, right? Um, I'm, I'm making an accusation against my people from the king, from the judge. Then verses 3, 3 through... Five, they address the people. This is the actual, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The interrogation. This is, what, this is the king pleading the, pleading the charge against the guilty. But it's a bit unique. And then verse six, verses 6 and 7 are the response. The response of the people or person. This is a singular. And then verse 8 looks like it's the verdict. Okay? So that's how we're going to proceed. Now, I want to situate this within the book. We don't have time to... If you've been coming, you've heard, you've heard the other sermons through Micah. 
uh, there are some really important themes here. There's, you know, themes of judgment and themes of the calls to repentance, but where I want to situate this is, is within some, some specific themes. The end of chapter 2, and if you, you know, if you haven't been here, write these down and look at these later. And this helps give an understanding of how prophetic literature works. So in chapter 2, you have this mention of a shepherd king who's going to bring his people back. He's a shepherd calling the flock, but he's also a king. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is the shepherd of his people. In chapter 3, verse 8, you get... And so, and so the shepherd king, of course, because he's the Lord, he does the things the Lord does. But then in, in chapter 3, there's the, the prophet says, I'm going to call... I'm going to call Israel, the spirit, of, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I'm going, to call on, I'm going to call out the sins of Israel and call them to repent. But the spirit of the Lord gives this prophet a spirit of justice. And so when the spirit of the Lord descends upon a prophet, the, spirit, the prophet does the things that God does. When you get to chapter 4, there's the temple. And the temple is a place where, you know, God renew, it's the, it's the, in, the, in these last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be higher than all of the mountains on earth. This is, the, this is kind of the culmination. This is the goal of the prophetic message. But then in chapter 5, we get a message about a king. But interestingly, there's not very much said about this king, apart from him being a shepherd. He shepherds the people. But there are no divine qualities except for that. And I suggest the way prophetic literature needs to be read is you read it in cycles. You, read, you kind of get a glimpse of a picture. You know, it's like the carnival. If you've listened to classical music, it's... Um, Camille Saint-Saëns has a piece of music called The Carnival of the Animals. And if you were just to look at, if you said, this is the Carnival of the Animals, and you listen to the giraffe song, I don't know if this is one. You know, there's the chickens and then the swan and all these things. Listen to this piece of music. This is the Carnival of Animals. You say, this is, this is just one animal. How is this the Carnival of the Animals? Well, when you get the whole piece of music, then you get the carnival. And this is what we need to do when we read prophetic literature. We need to let it cycle in and out. And it's going to teach us the same thing over and over again, like surround sound in a, you know, in a movie theater. It's teaching you the same concept through different, through different images, through different visions, through different themes. So this king in chapter 5, if you, listen, if you have ears to hear, you know he's the same king. Who, who, he does the things that Yahweh the king does in chapter 2. Chapter 7 is, brings, in then, brings in the return from exile, from presumably Babylon, but really all of Israel's enemies. So when you see these themes together, you see there's a shepherd king who gives prophets, who's going to bring people back from Israel and, um, sorry, bring people back from exile and put them to the temple, bring them to the temple, and all the nations will be gathered there. But interestingly, we have the, ki- the prophet and the king, but there's one theme that's missing in this book. And it's, un- it's unspoken, but it's, it's right in front of our eyes. And that's the theme of the priest. Forgive me if I weep. I think it's glorious. So I think I, I've, my professors in seminary said, what's the big idea? And I, I won't say thesis, but what's the big idea? And I think the big idea of this, this passage is the depth of Israel's problem and the necessity of a divinely empowered priestly sacrifice. Let me see if I can unpack this for you through the literary structure. I'm just going to walk through the text. I hope, I hope to show you that there are some amazing things hidden right before our eyes. <clears throat> so look at this introduction, verses 1 and 2. Now this is, this is missed in English, but this imperative, hear, please hear, this is a plural imperative. This is addressed presumably to all of Israel. And this is what hear what, what the Lord is saying right now. 
And, that, and then the second part of this line is going to be the actual content of what the Lord is saying. But interestingly, the second imperative, arise, this is, I'm, this is, I don't know if this is the same translation, but arise, plead with the mountains so that the hills would hear your voice. This imperative, arise, plead, this is a singular imperative. This is not addressing the same group as the first imperative. But then if you look in verse 2, we have the same, the same verb again, the same imperative as verse, the first uh, verb in verse 1. Hear, O mountains, the, the accusation of the Lord. This is another plural imperative. So what we have in the first line is maybe the, the statement of the prophet. Hear what Yahweh is saying. And then the second part, when he says, arise, this is God speaking to the prophet to send him in to do this message. Arise. This, remember, this is, a court, this is a courtroom scene. Arise, raise a case with the mountains so that the hills would hear your voice. Singular, your voice. And now, then verse 2 initiates the prophetic message. Hear, O mountains, the case of the Lord. And I think your translation, who, is anybody reading something else than the NIV? So the NIV says, listen. But the ESV doesn't, and the RSV doesn't. And this is a textual thing. Sorry, I'm going to go into this. But this is there's a, what we call a textual problem here. It's not really a problem, but the NIV saw it as a problem. And I think, I'll be just brief. The, the word is difficult, but it sounds like another word we know that means listen. And we see that word elsewhere in Micah, like in Micah 1-2. Hear you peoples, listen. O earth. And this resembles what we see in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is Moses' song to the children of Israel. And it's like the prototypical prophetic song. It's the prototypical prophetic message. If you don't know Deuteronomy 32, take time and read it. Take time and study it. The prophets, all the prophets are building their messages on Torah, but on Deuteronomy 32. And this is how it begins. So it begins, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Micah 1, verse 2 says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, all that's in it. And the NIV picks this up. Even though the word that they're translating might not, might not get it. They're actually doing like a good whole Bible reading, even if the translation is, it's not incorrect. It's just an interpretation because this is a very hard word. It actually says something like, Hear, O mountains, the, the lawsuit of the Lord. And then it, you, have to you have to supply a verb. Hear or listen, O O deep things, O constantly flowing things of the foundations of the earth. But the NIV gets that part too, right? O foundations of the earth. What does it say? The you everlasting foundations of the earth. So it's not missing anything, but they're, they're, they're showing you how to, how to read it, I think, correctly. But I want to, in case you see a different translation that has a different reading, just you know this now. Yeah, so the NIV preserves it. What's interesting about this passage is that the courtroom is the whole world. And the, and the prophet is calling upon not people to be the witnesses of God's accusations. He's calling on the creation. Why is he calling on the creation? I think it has something to do with the inability for unfaithful Israel to function as a witness. You don't call an unfaithful witness to court to testify against other unfaithful witnesses. There's no good. There's no not one. So why would God call people to testify against themselves? This is the context in which 
were being situated. So Yahweh assembles his creation courtroom through the mouth of the prophet against his people Israel. So let's look at the next next few verses. Now the prophet addresses the people. But who is speaking? Who's speaking here? It's in the first person. It's in the first person. My people, what did I do to you? How did I, or how did I uh, grieve you, perhaps? Answer, me. So the prophet's speaking this, but the prophet, the prophet didn't do these things. And we're about to see what, what he did. Verse 4, for I, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and from the house of slavery I redeemed you. Right, this is not the prophet, this is God. But he's speaking through the prophet. <clears throat> On this topic, we need to consider that when a prophet speaks, this is, a, this is what the Bible requires us if we're to read the text accurately. When a prophet speaks, it is as if God is speaking because God is speaking. So when you read this book, and if you don't hear God's voice, it's because you don't have ears to hear. And this is a, this is a judgment on me, and it's upon all of us. And this is what the New Testament says of Jesus and the apostles as well, right? The Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In Galatians, Paul, Paul establishes his authority as an apostle, just like that. I'm an apostle not through men, nor by, by men, but through Jesus Christ. And if you don't listen to him, you are denying Jesus Christ. Those are, these are terrifying things to consider. 1 John 4, 1-6 through 6 is, another, is another amazing text. If you don't listen to us, it's because you're a false teacher. Are we listening to this text? we do not stand in judgment over it. It stands in judgment over us. And if we don't listen to it, the whole creation will bear witness against us. So look at these, look at these things. But this is not a harsh judge, because look what he does. He doesn't accuse the people. He appeals to them. What did I do to you? I did all these great things for you. I delivered you from Egypt. I delivered you from slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Right? These are the same things that Paul writes about in Colossians 1. Right? In 1, 13 through 14, he delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He delivered you from slavery. This is Colossians 1, 21 and 22. He delivered you, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but he, uh, he, he ransomed you from your wicked ways and he, he gave you a new and living hope. It's something like this. But then I thought, well, what else in, what's going on here? What's going on with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam? Okay, we understand Moses is the covenant prophet. He's, he's a covenant maker, in a sense, and Aaron is the prophet. But what's Miriam's role here? Well, she's the songwriter. At the end of Exodus 15, this is Moses' big song after they get delivered out of Egypt, Miriam sings a song too. And this is what Colossians says as well. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The New Testament knows these models. The New Testament understands the way the Hebrew Bible is structuring things, and it's picking them up. The next thing we see, you know, I I did these things for you. I ransomed you. I provided you with, you know, teachers and prophets. How do we apply this to our day? We had Jesus and the apostles. We had the early church fathers. We had, I don't know, John Calvin, uh, John Owen. Think Think of the amazing teachers that God has put before us. 
We, he, we have his word. We have the history of, of the church. This is testifying against us. We need to listen. There's, we are without excuse. And last of all, until the next point, is that remember, you know, I, I did these things. What did I do to you? I did these things. Now remember what, what Balaam, the king of Moab, counseled against you. And what, uh, and what sorry, Balak, the king of the king, counseled against you. What Balaam, the son of Baor, what he, did, what, what he answered him. Do we remember this story from the book of Numbers? This is where the king of Moab doesn't want Israel to come in and conquer him and take over the land, and so he brings this prophet to call curses upon them, but the prophet can't do it because God won't let them, let him, and he confounds the wisdom of the world, basically. Now, the, God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I preserved you in the wilderness, right, before you went into the promised land. Consider these things. He's not saying go and read a book on apologetics or on the history of Israel to figure out that these things are true. Those are good things to read. He's appealing, this prophet is appealing to the Bible to justify the Bible. We don't get to stand over it. We submit to the whole thing. So with that in context, with, with that context set up, this is really the key thing. This next line is the key thing I think we can discover to be, a, to be magnificent, to be glorious. And it's also the hardest thing in the text. It's the hardest thing in the text. This is how it is. It's the, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to dig them out. Right? When you find a very tricky thing in the Bible, mark it and pray about it and come back to it. From Shittim to Gilgal. I did these things to Balak and Balaam. From Shittim to Gilgal. So that you may know the the justices, the just acts of the Lord. What is Shittim? What is Gilgal? You guys know where Shittim is? It's in Numbers 25. It's the first thing that happens to Israel after, what would you say? After Balak and Balaam are confounded. Would somebody read that to us? Just the, the first 13 verses of Numbers 25. Neil, would you read it if you're there? The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods, so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peoria, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaves of these people and kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death. Those are your people who have yoked themselves to Baal, your Lord. And this right man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of Midian. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly with a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into his tent. And he drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And the plague against the Israelites was stopped. Those who died in the plague number 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my city. Right. <clears throat> so this is Shittim. 
And Gilgal is the first place they get into in the promised land. And the prophet is saying here, I did all these things, remember what happened, from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you may know the righteous things that the Lord did for you. Israel disobeyed before they even got into the promised land, right? But because of this, presumably a priest, the son of a son of a priest, killing the idol worshiper and cursing, killing the idol worshiper that was basically cursing Israel, who cursed herself with idolatry, the people get into the land. So I wrote here, Israel is an idolatry and the instance in the promised land takes place between Numbers 25 and Joshua 3. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, is the righteous one who removes the curse from Israel. In turn, he enables Israel to enter the promised land by killing those responsible for Israel's idolatry. And I think we can establish this in a few ways. So that you may know the righteous acts of God. Psalm 106 says that Phineas was justified by this. He was counted righteous by this act. Phineas's act was God's action wrought in him. Right? And so in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there are these worms, just worms, words, <clears throat> justice and righteousness. And the Hebrew words are um, uh, mishpat and tzedakah. I'll use these just because it's good, good things to know. And then there's another pair of words, steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed emet, emet. That's my, child, that's my son's name. So chesed and emet is steadfast love and faithfulness. And mishpat and tzedakah, melkit tzedakah, melchizedek, this is where that comes from. These are justice and faithfulness. So Psalm 33.5 says something. says, those who love righteousness and justice, to, oh, oh, maybe uh, the one who loves justice and righteousness to the one. The earth is full of the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord. And then in Psalm 117.2, you have emet and chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. His steadfast love is greatly upon us, and the, stead, and, the, and the emmet of the Lord is forever and ever. Hallelujah. These are things that God, these are things that God has. Oh, sorry, in Psalm 33, it's he is one who loves is justice and righteousness, not the one who. He, God is one who loves justice and righteousness. These are his attributes. But Psalm 106 says, and Phineas stood and he prayed and he, he did these things, he did these things to remove the plague. And this action was reckoned to him as righteousness for generation and generation forever. Right? Phineas gets things that only God has. He gets the things that God requires. And this phraseology is exactly the same as, as, as Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believes the Lord, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. Right? He believed in the Lord, and the belief was reckoned as righteousness. So when we read the Bible in its whole context, we can see that Phineas's behavior was a righteousness apart from law. The same terminology being used for Abraham is being used for Phineas. But you have to search it out. So apparently then, Phineas, this priest, or the son of a son of a priest, he, he performed by faith the priestly righteousness required to enter the promised land. He brought the people in the promised land through faith. Or something like faith. So this is the key, I think, to this passage. Understanding the, understanding the strange phrase from Shittim to Gilgal. How does this then relate to the mention of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam above? 
I gave you these people. Is this a positive thing? I think in some sense it's a positive thing. But all three of these people died in the wilderness. These were prophets. And Moses the prophet, Aaron is the priest, and Miriam is the prophetess. They died in the wilderness. What, what was unique about Phineas that Moses, Aaron, and, and Miriam didn't have? It's something like they didn't live by faith. I'm not saying that they didn't because Moses, in, I think in Hebrews 11, it talks about Moses doing this. But I think what it's saying is the covenant of Moses, that Moses created or initiated or was involved in was not a covenant that enabled entrance into the promised land. Only Phineas the priest brought the people in. What God gave to Moses was powerless to overcome their condition. And we see that in, we see that in, the, in Numbers 25. Right? As soon as the law is given on Sinai, the first thing that people do is sin. They build the golden calf and they commit idolatry. The first thing that happens once they leave the mountain is they're cursed by, their, their attempt, you know, and a curse attempt was made by Balaam and Balak. It was thwarted. God preserved them in the wilderness, and the first thing they do is commit idolatry. They deserve judgment there. That probably should have been the end of the world, like the end of the world. But, but a righteous priest arose and ended the curse. And I think what happens now in verses 6 and 7 is the people realize this. Sorry, I'll try and do this in 10 minutes. The people realize the reality of their sin and the powerlessness of the law. And this is what we get in 6. But what's very interesting here is that there's a switch. It's not, it's not first person plural. It's a first person singular. With what shall I approach the Lord? Right? Initially, this is to Israel. Bring a case to the mountains against my people, against Israel. But here, the response is, with what shall you and you and me, what shall I bring to, the God, to God? What, with what shall I bow down to the God most high? Shall I bring to him you know, burnt offerings and bulls of a year old? They realize there's a problem. They realize they need atonement. Their sin is, their sin is intractable. They're obstinate people. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Right? This is first person, singular still. With 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I, set, shall I give him my firstborn son or child for my transgression, singular, my transgression? Or shall I give the, first, the fruit of my womb for the sin of my soul? Look at this. They know the law doesn't work because in the law, a person's not required to give thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. An individual gives, I think, two and that depends on how much money you make. Right? A goat, I mean, I need to think this through more, but in Exodus, the goat, into the goat is sacrificed and there's a goat into the wilderness. There's two there. And I think you bring your, your annual offering. You, you don't bring thousands of rams. You don't bring, bring 10,000 rivers of oil. The people realize the depth of their sin. It's so bad, they think, who can atone for my sin? Because the law didn't do it. The law, doesn't, the law doesn't take away sins. Who can atone for our sin? And we know what the text has already said. Shall I sacrifice my child 
my firstborn son. The covenant with Israel didn't remove sins. And Israel sought to enhance what God required. But they got the picture. They knew they needed a sacrifice. They knew they needed a sacrifice for their sins. So what's the sacrifice that works? looks like if we take the context seriously what god requires is that is only what he can do in us through a sacrificial priest son and this needs to be i need to think about this more but i think this is what's going on here look at this address verse eight is the address what's the answer what shall i do what shall i prepare before you just kind of muddle around and pretend you're good you know just live by faith That's not, that's not what this says. He declared to you, O man, or O mortal, the Hebrew word is Adam, Adam. Why are we talking about Israel? Why does the Hebrew text use Adam? He has told you, O Adam, what is good. This, is like, this might be an allusion to Genesis 3 where he says, Who told you that you were naked? Who declared to you that you were naked? Who declared to you, O Adam, what is good? What does the Lord seek from you? Except doing mishpat, justice, and loving chesed, steadfast love, and walking humbly before your God. Now, there are some people out there today that will say, we don't need a temple, we don't need sacrifices, because this is all God requires of us. Messiah couldn't have died for our sins, these types of things. But that's not reading it in context. This is the, in the courtroom scene, this is what God is saying is the solution to their problem, right? Here's your accusation. Oh, we're very sorry. What can we do? The things that you can't do. You need a priest and you need a sacrifice. And we know in Micah there's a temple. And we see that the message from Shittim to Gilgal, this is appealing to Phineas, who, who canceled out Israel's debts so they could enter the promised land by killing the curse, really, by killing a plague, the source of the plague. And both Phineas and Abraham, who are called righteous in the Hebrew Bible, they offered sacrifices to bring about the promise regarding a promised son, presumably. So Israel needs a covenant mediator who does, who does the very works of God to function as her sacrifice. This is clear from the appeal to the priest in Phineas in verse 5 and from the sacrifices in verse 6 and 7. Sacrifices are essential or else the people wouldn't have said, shall we do this? It's like, oh, no, no, you never needed those sacrifices anyways. Well, what was the covenant all about? What was the covenant all about? What is the whole Bible about? I mean, sacrifices are essential. God's just not going to forget their sin. But this verse in the lawsuit is very interesting because what usually happens at the end of a lawsuit? You have your accusations. You have the, the plea. Oh, don't do this. We know we're guilty, but don't do this. Then you get a sentence, a verdict. 
But there's no verdict here. Well, I mean, there is. But there's no, okay, I'm going to punish you for your sins. Because God would provide this. All right? God would provide a priest who would actually take away sins. The lawsuit is without explicit punishment. How do the people get off? Just by walking humbly, as if this was possible, right? The people can't do anything but sin. How can they do the things God does? There must be, a sa- there must be an atonement for sins by this same righteous priest, or something like him. Not a Mosaic or Aaronic priest. A priest like Phineas, or a priest like Melchizedek. And isn't it interesting that Jesus makes the suggestion that we study this idea in Matthew 19, 11 to 13, says this. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think, I think mercy there might be, I don't know what it is, but it's a similar concept. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. I was talking with Dave about this earlier. This might be the only place in the New Testament, um, we can, I can stand corrected, where Jesus actually tells us to go read the Bible. Go and learn what this means. This is important. Right? The Lord of glory told us to go and study the Bible. We should listen to him. I never took him seriously until these past few weeks. The same concepts of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, occur in 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 40, Psalm 51, Amos 4, Hosea 6. They're all over the Bible, but they're scattered, and you need to go and discover what this idea means. I haven't looked at all of them. I think they might all be talking about this same thing. I have great sins, but you desire a pure heart. So we'll look at Psalm 40, verse 6, and then we're going to flip to Hebrews 10. If you guys would flip to Hebrews 10, I'll read this portion of the psalm, and then we'll conclude. So Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, occurs in Hebrews 10. In sac- it says this, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this is cited in Hebrews 10. And Hebrews is a book about a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the themes of the book of Hebrews are the same as those found in Micah. And there's no wonder why Jesus told us to read this passage or a passage that's similar to it. And if you want, we can look, we can look at Hebrews 10 just briefly. And then we'll see what we'll do. verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been guilty, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take sins away from your life. They don't cleanse you internally. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. 
I have come to do your will, my God. And then down to verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We'll conclude with verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened us, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So what's unique about Jesus' sacrifice, what about Jesus' righteous priesthood, a priesthood over, after the order of Melchizedek that brings about the righteousness by faith, is that in, instead of killing the source of the curse and plague upon Israel, he himself became the source. The curse upon the world was laid upon him for us. Phineas wouldn't have done that. But by his sacrifice, we can enter the promised land. That's a glorious truth. Let's pray. God, would you apply these things to our lives? And would we seek you with our whole hearts? Would you show us that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of creation? We ask you to do these things in our lives so that we can have assurance of faith. We can be cleansed from our sins. Open our eyes to the glorious sacrifice the cross of Calvary. Amen.